Okay, hi everyone. My name is Matthew, and I'll be one of your hosts for today's episode of the Yonsei Podcast by Nikkei Rising into Daima, a virtual pilgrimage series, where we'll be talking with other Nikkei youth about Japanese American history and the way it affects Nikkei youth today. Today's episode is entitled Nikkei Incarceration Abroad, and we'll be exploring the Nikkei experience outside of the United States, specifically in Canada and Peru. Hi, I'm Johnny. I'm super excited for this episode because we're going to get to to hear about experiences that often aren't highlighted among the Japanese American storytelling community. Specifically, we have guests who are Japanese Peruvian and Japanese Canadian. So let's introduce our guests. Our first guest today is Marissa Nakata. Marissa is a rising junior at SF State pursuing art history and in pursuit of a teaching credential. She also served as the internship coordinator at Asian Student Union at SF State. Hi, I'm so happy to be here with you guys. And our second guest is Kayla Isomura. Kayla is a fourth-generation Japanese and Chinese-Canadian photographer. She explores themes of intergenerational trauma and racialized identity in her work. With a background in journalism, her interest in storytelling through multimedia has been deeply influenced by her family's roots. In 2018, Kayla produced The Suitcase Project, asking Yonsei and Gosei what they would pack thinking about the forced internment and incarceration of their ancestors. Kayla currently lives on the unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations, presently known as Vancouver, Canada. Hi, Kayla. Welcome. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. Yeah, I've been looking forward to this episode a lot because, I don't know, it's just interesting to hear different sides of the Japanese-American story or like just like the Japanese story outside of Japan. And yeah, I've I've met Kayla before at the Minidoka pilgrimage where she was giving like a lecture about the Japanese-Canadian experience. And also, I don't know that much about the Japanese-Peruvian story, so I'm interested to hear what you have to say, Marissa. So yeah, how has that been? I don't know. I guess that I'm totally the opposite. I don't really know anything about Japanese Canadian history. So I'm like super stoked to hear about that. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Kayla, can, can you tell us a bit about uh, what it is that you do and like the projects that you worked on a little bit? Sure. So by day right now, I work in communications for a nonprofit. But outside of that, I do photography. So I always have a lot of various projects happening. But I guess the biggest one or the main one that I often talk about um, is the suitcase project where I ask Yonsei and Gosei what they would pack thinking about the forced internment and incarceration of their ancestors. But also mm-hmm. kind of talking about the experience of Yonsei and Gosei today or like, I guess, the result of that history. And then kind of always doing like various photo or random art projects. So right now I'm working on a theme project with my sister related Mm -hmm. to Japanese Canadian art and artwork, but kind of thinking about activism and allyship outside of her. Oh, that's awesome. How does like Japanese Canadian artwork, how's that distinct from other forms of Japanese American art and stuff? Uh, I guess, well, I guess for this project, it's more specifically just art, like writing an art done by Japanese Canadian folks. So I don't know if there's like, in terms of like actual art, I don't know if there's like a certain style I see, um, I see. that would be different. But I think like experiences and stories are do very uh, 
Yeah. Okay. So wait. So I had a question for everybody. You know how like I don't know Japanese American culture or like cuisine or food like there are like unique highlights like just like different random things that we do or like our obons are like the highlight of the summer or things like that. I was wondering, do you guys like have any outstanding Japanese Peruvian or Japanese Canadian foods or anything like that? I, I was thinking about this. I think something that really comes to mind, chow mein. Which I'm sure I don't know, like if you guys have variations of that as well, like um, in the states or even in Peru. But Japanese Canadian chow mein, like there's, I think there's a couple different recipes depending on like where you are. But I think the recipes are very specific and very specifically bland. <laughs> um, yeah. I was thinking about this, yeah. So I think, especially in comparison to like Chinese, like Chinese chow mein, like Japanese Canadian chow mein is very bland, like very plain, and mm-hmm. very like limited in ingre- ingredients, and it's very particular that way. <laughs> Interesting. So like, it's like it's more like minimalist food than the way I'm imagining. Um, yeah, it's like very few ingredients and mm. like very specific ingredients too. But I was talking about, or I did a project related to this last year and included a couple of sansei friends, and they were talking about growing up, like, eating chow mein sandwiches. So chow mein, mm-hmm. like, between bread and, like, mayo, because it's, like, oh. really plain. Wow. So it kind of stops up, like, flavor. <laughs> it's, it's like, I can get behind that. I can imagine that being pretty good. That sounds really good to me, honestly. Yeah. It was actually pretty good, and I was, like... This is way better than eating it plain on its own. Yeah, carbs on carbs. I love it. Exactly. <laughs> what about you, Marissa? Yeah, so for Japanese Peruvians, they use a lot of Japanese ingredients, but try to make Peruvian food with it. Or they'll uh-huh. use a lot of like Peruvian spices and peppers and stuff. Mm-hmm. So like some of the things that were kind of like influenced by each other is like the like famous Peruvian um ceviche or lomo saltado. Like they have a lot of Chinese and Japanese influence. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and, like, whenever my grandparents, they have, like, celebrations and stuff, we kind of eat, like, Peruvian food and Japanese food. Like, we just eat all of it together. Oh, my God. I want to go to one of your parties. It's all so <laughs> good. I miss it so much. Like, that sounds like a really good mixture, like, ceviche with Japanese. Oof. Oof. Yeah, it's super, super good. They use a lot of meat and chicken in um, Peruvian food. Mm-hmm. And so it's, like... We just add a lot of Japanese like spices as well to a lot of Peruvian food. So it's like kind of both ways. We just add a lot of spices to each kind of food. It does sound really good. (laughs) Okay, so on our podcast, we often talk about the Japanese American internment and that experience and like how that's affected us and our families and our communities and the way that that like the way the, the effects affected our grandparents have kind of trickled down to us. So I was wondering if we could like discuss that a bit from your each of your unique perspectives from Canada and also in Peru, because I don't know, I, I'm super interested in hearing the different sides of these stories. Yeah, so there's, I think with the Japanese Canadian history of internment and incarceration, there, in some ways, there's a lot of parallels with the Japanese American experience, especially, I think, the timeline. Um, and like the events that sort of happened. But I think mm-hmm. uh, some of the 
really distinct points of history that differed um, from our experience was, first of all, the fact that the Canadian government seized and sold all of our property and possessions um, without our permission. Oh wow. Yeah, so like property, cars, boats. So they actually profited. They like legit straight up profited at the detriment of Japanese Canadians. Yeah, so they kind of sold things for the lowest dollar and kind of used that as like, oh, well, you know, like to pay. Like, I think the money was basically used to pay for our own internment and incarceration. Oh. And like people would get like, you know, their money from the sale of their, their stuff put into like their bank account or whatever. But I think it was all very like, first of all, like the lowest dollar and second of all, it was all like kind of managed by the government. And so that was like, mm. I think a really big thing that happened. And because people didn't know that this was going to happen while they were um, being interned and incarcerated, that what mm-hmm. they had taken with them was all that they really had when they left after, oh, the, like, wow. after the war. Yeah. So like basically they didn't get a, suit- a suitcase project. They weren't even asked the question, what would you take with you if that's all you could like have anymore? Um. Yeah, so I when I did the suitcase project, I, I did, like, the original tension was very much centered around the Japanese-Canadian experience, um, and it was still what you would take with you because people still had packed a suitcase uh, or a bag with them. But I think when we look at it from our perspective, knowing history, like, uh, the Japanese-Canadian folks that I had interviewed in my project, a lot of them then ended up taking more sentimental items and mm. things knowing that, like, they wouldn't want to have lost Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think the other really big thing that I would also just say about our history is just the fact that with Japanese, the Japanese-Canadian experience, our government also, our prime minister specifically, recommended that Japanese-Canadians be dispersed across Canada and not return to the West Coast and that people could voluntarily be exiled to Japan. So Japanese-Canadians weren't mm-hmm. also allowed to return to the West Coast until 1949. And by then, a lot of them had settled elsewhere. So our community is super dispersed. Mm-hmm. And I think that really plays a lot with like the identity of Japanese Canadians today. Right. So all of these different Japanese-American families were spread across Canada without really any community anymore. Yeah. So they had to kind of rebuild community or like in certain parts, the community was definitely established. But then in other parts of the country, I would say... It was more about, like, kind of just blending in and, like, the assimilation and just, like, living your life in the way that, you know, you're able or you know how to. So it's really Mm -hmm. interesting because I think, for me, anyway, and there are a lot of other, like, fourth-generation Japanese Canadians that I know who feel like they didn't grow up, like, knowing other Japanese Canadian people or really Mm -hmm. having access to, like, that history or culture. I can slightly relate in the fact that I grew up um, without really that many Japanese American influences. Like we had extended family that like came over for like New Year's and stuff, but my family largely didn't really engage with the, the greater Japanese American community with the Seattle area. So I kind of get that disconnect between you and your culture. For sure. Yeah. Um, thank you for sharing that. That's like, I, did, I had no clue about that. That must like largely impact the culture of the way like Japanese culture has evolved in that region. Yeah, I think it's interesting because my dad then was born and raised in Montreal and Quebec. And then later, like in his late teen years, they moved basically back here to the lower mainland in British Columbia. Mm. 
But for one of my friends, we were talking, like, I often talk about my experience as a Japanese-Canadian person who didn't have access or exposure to other Japanese-Canadian people. And I grew up here, in ba- like, in the Vancouver area. Mm-hmm. But one of my friends who grew up in southern Alberta, in Lethbridge, the community was very concentrated there as a result of the war because a lot of Japanese-Canadian families had moved there to farm and she grew up around like a lot of other Nikkei kids so it was very common for her on the other hand to grow up around other people and she said like in her high school like if you did judo it was seen as like cool yeah so just like these differences in like where you grew up yeah <laughs> No, yeah, I definitely, I definitely can relate to that being from, even though being born in Los Angeles, growing up in Arizona, all of the other JA kids were either like 10 years younger than me or 10 years older than me. So it definitely was different growing up and then going back to LA and, and diving into the community and finally meeting people my own age. It was definitely a great experience. Thanks, Kayla, so much for sharing that story. I mean, being a history major and I've done a lot of work with Japanese and Japanese American history. I, I do admit, I, I don't know much about Japanese Canadian history or Japanese Latin American history. So I, it's really exciting to get to hear these stories. I yeah, guess that sure. means that's Marissa's turn. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so in Peru, there was already like a super strong anti-Japanese xenophobic mentality there. Even in like around 1940, there was a huge riot like against Japanese businesses. So a lot of them were devastated during that. Oh, wow. And then... Yeah, and then a couple years later, the war actually hit, and the Peruvians were kind of against the Japanese. So when the U.S. government came to ask if they would send over Japanese Peruvians to the incarceration camps, Peru was kind of like, yeah, um, I'll just send them over to you. I don't really want them here anyways. Yeah, so then they kind of just came in, and they took a lot of people. However, they didn't take all of them because a lot of them weren't seen as threats because a lot of them were in the lower classes or poverty. So they were more like mm. rural, rural working farmers and they weren't seen as a threat. But then like my, my Thea, she was, her father was um, a community leader in the Japanese Peruvian community. So mm. he was actually put on one of those blacklists that consisted of other Japanese yeah. Peruvians who were considered threats. And so yeah. their family was taken here. Yeah. Wait, so there, there was riots in Peru. It sounds like it was like almost like a classist issue, too. So I assume Japanese Peruvians had small businesses or found some sort of success. Yeah, yeah. That was kind of exactly what it was. They had their small businesses like bakeries and fruit farming things. And I think a lot of the Peruvians, they felt threatened by that, especially since Japan had opened only fairly recently, kind of. And then they came over to Peru and they were very industrial, very hardworking, and mm-hmm. the Peruvians were threatened by that. And they already have a very kind of crooked and classist government anyways. Mm-hmm. Like the wealth gap between the rich and the poor is huge. And even now there's many living in poverty, which is also why COVID is hitting them so hard. Right. But yeah, so then there were a lot of Japanese Peruvians that were taken, but then also on the boat that was brought that brought my family here was like German Peruvians and Italian Peruvians, but not as much as the yeah. Japanese Peruvians. I was wondering how many Japanese Peruvians were deported compared to the amount that stayed. I think that compared to the amount that stayed, I think that it was a smaller amount because there was actually a huge diasporic community in Peru. Mm. 
from Japan, mm-hmm. but then only small of them were like super involved and like semi-political community leaders. So yeah. a lot of them were brought over, but then a lot of them stayed there. And instead of them being sent here, they were like their Japanese schools were kind of disbanded. They were taught Catholicism. They were taught a lot of Peruvian traditions and it was kind of like their Japanese culture was quelled mm-hmm. during that time. So they just wanted to suppress that. And instead of having them come here and be incarcerated, they had them go there and kind of just really assimilate into the Peruvian culture. Yeah, oh, so wow. it sounds like it was like sort of forced assimilation. Your story really reminds me of my great-grandfather's story that I, I told in an episode a couple of weeks ago. He also was a community leader in the Japanese-American farming industry, or the farmer community. And he was also taken by the U.S. government and put in like a Department of Justice camp in Santa Fe, mm-hmm. uh, separate from his family. So it sounds like it kind of like ties into the greater idea that these actions by our government weren't just a racist act, a xenophobic act, but it was also an economic act. It was sort of an act Mm -hmm. of retribution against these immigrants who don't look like us, who have the audacity to be successful and benefit from the American economy or the Peruvian economy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because I mean, you, you see a lot of that same sentiment in California in the 19th, well, not only California, but the entire West Coast in the 1930s, because obviously there were a lot of Japanese farms and Japanese farmers, and a lot of white farmers were very jealous of, of the Japanese farmers being able to grow and, and be successful and, and do all these things while they were still struggling, or they wished that they had their farmland because they thought it was somehow better, even though it was all the same land. It's really, it, I mean, it is fascinating to see the the similarities between all of these stories, despite them happening in, in slightly different places with slightly different contexts. But in the end, the, what had happened to a degree is, is the same. So what was the experience of your, was it your grandparents or your great-grandparents, Marissa? So it was actually my, my OG's sister was adopted by their uncle when she was young. And that was the family that came over or was oh, wow. taken forcibly from Peru to come here. But yeah, so they were they came and were incarcerated in Crystal City, Texas to be part of the secret prisoner like exchange program. So right. they were preparing them and having them go to Japanese school to learn Japanese. So they would be able to trade them for like American diplomats and other like people of power that were in Japan at the time. So not only were they brought here and they only speak Spanish, but they were brought to an American camp and mm-hmm. had to learn Japanese. And mm-hmm. yeah, it was just kind of crazy. Yeah, they were basically being used as bargaining chips. Yep. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Ridiculous. Were they taught English as well? There were English schools, but that was mainly for the U.S.-born Japanese families, as well as I think the German English, like the Germans, I think, went to the English yeah. school. But yeah, there were people around, but like they kind of just stuck to their own Japanese-Peruvian Mm, right. Do you know if that was actually successful? Like they actually were able to trade Japanese Peruvians or Japanese Americans for political prisoners? I don't think it happened as much as the U.S. government would have liked. So a lot of them were still in the camp. And this camp, I think, was a little bit different than the other incarceration camps. My Theo was telling me that Crystal City, they had a lot better amenities, I think, because they had their own like they had their own kitchenettes. They had like a grocery store that they could go to or like a fabric store, like within the, within the camp. So they were able mm-hmm. to buy ingredients to try and cook Japanese and Peruvian food in their own kitchen at the little barracks. So they ha- were given like some small liberties, like within the camp and even like with their school, mm-hmm. the Japanese school was apparently like super good, maybe even better than the, the Japanese school in Peru. 
because like they had so many educators who were interned there. So yeah. 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 I think Crystal, when we talk about the camps in the U S we, we tend to forget that there were more besides the main 10 that we think about. Although those main 10 were run by the, the war relocation authority, which was technically a civilian group, whereas Crystal City was Department of Justice. So it did have different jurisdiction. It did have a different agenda from the other camps. So I think, yeah, yeah, like you said, it ended up being very different for the people there. It was still a terrible experience, but in some ways they did have more amenities and a different experience. And of course, being incarcerated with German and Italian immigrants and German Italian Americans also was, was an interesting story for many of them. Yeah. Oh, so I was wondering, um, now that we're talking about like the, the conditions and the experiences within the camp, Kayla, do you want to like share what that was like on the Canadian side? Sure. Yeah. So there's, there were multiple experiences here, depending where your family went, because there were like internment camps, there were like sugar beet fields, there was like road, road labor, uh, preserve war camps. My dad's parents and his grandparents were interned in the interior of BC. So they, well, actually, let me track back. So my, my grandmother's, okay, so my dad's mom's family, they were actually prior to the war living in northern BC. Mm-hmm. And basically anybody living outside of Vancouver had to come down to Vancouver and go spend some time in Hastings Park, which was, I guess, similar to, like, your assembly centers um, in, in the States. So it was, mm. like, like a fairground, and folks had to, like, be in, like, these barn stalls, and it was all about, like, separating, like, men and then women and children. So, yeah, that was my grandmother's experience, and they were there, and then they ended up going to an internment camp called Tajmi. And Tajmi. then my Tajmi, yeah. And so that's actually like an hour and a half outside of Vancouver, driving. (laughs) Yeah. And then my grandfather's family would have been living in Vancouver before the war, and they went to Greenwood, which is like an eight-hour drive, I think, uh, just completely straight west, or east, sorry. (laughs) If you went west, you'd be in the water. Um, Straight (laughs) east, east from Vancouver. Uh, But the conditions in the camps were... Not great. So people were living park in their shacks. And it was like multiple families like living in a shack and they had mm-hmm. every and like people had to share like the toilet and like the kitchen space. Like it, I don't think there were like mess halls like um in the States. Oh, okay. So yeah, so like I think that's something that was a bit different as well. Mm-hmm. And then actually I guess and then like thinking about like the history as well and something that was also a little bit different was the sugar beet farms, which I've mentioned a couple of times, but basically sugar beet farms, which were kind of in Alberta, I think Manitoba, and a little bit in Ontario, they were actually offered as a way for families to stay together. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah, because other, other than that, like otherwise, like basically the men were basically separated from the women and children. Um, so as an option, you know, your family could stay together and labor on it on the sugar it, it wasn't mandatory that the families stick together like they actually actively separated families apart from each other yeah and that was like a general practice not just for like community leaders no uh it was a general practice 
That's insane. So it's like if you were like a man who was like over 18 or something, then you would go labor on like a road, doing like road work or whatever. But I think my grandfather and his family, like they stayed together in Greenwood because him and his brothers were like, I guess they were like teenagers at the time. So they weren't mm. old enough to go off to labor elsewhere. But I don't really know too much about their experiences because we talked a little bit about this to my great aunt and uncle. And my great uncle just kind of remembers like helping teach in the camp and like my great aunt, like they were kind of just talking about like if this history didn't happen, they wouldn't have met each other and therefore like they wouldn't have had like their family. So reflecting on it as not necessarily a negative thing, but the Mm -hmm. outcomes obviously yeah it's good that they're able to like see the silver lining in such an awful situation yeah yeah i think a lot of a lot of families now all over also think that is just like yes to a degree like a lot of families are sort of sentimental because they met loved ones and they met friends in the camp um and, and for some folks it was the first time they were surrounded by a large group of japanese americans but i also think here there was a fear here, of course, of, of families being separated and being broken apart. And I didn't know that that happened in Canada, and I can't believe that actually did happen. That's that's just unfathomable to me. And I, I do wonder how much different and how much harder it would have been for folks, for people here, if that had been a thing that the government did here. And I can't imagine the, the untold stress and anguish it put on people in the camps in Canada. Yeah, for sure. And it's almost weird to hear that said out loud. Like, I've never, like, I know that's part of the history, but, like, thinking about it in those terms of just, like, family separation, especially with, like, what's, right. you know, continuing to happen today. Mm-hmm. My mind just yeah. went, like, oh, my God. Like, yeah. all the yeah. connections. And I'm just, like, yeah. <laughs> right. It's, like, it's part of the American playbook of dealing with aliens, I guess. Like, the other. It's absurd. I was wondering, do you like see evidence of that within like the Japanese Ameri- or the Japanese Canadian community because of that, the family separation? How do you see like this experience affecting you guys now? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure that there's some effect of, of like you know that idea of like the separation and and stuff like that. But I guess I think I thought more of it in relation to the the whole like dispersal of the community and I know we often we often talk about like you know in the Japanese Canadian and the Japanese American community about like loss of culture language and stuff like that but Mm -hmm. I think it's really interesting because when I go to Seattle and I will go to certain things that are like oh like this church it's a very Nikkei church and I was like that's something that I think that's really weird to me because with that idea of like all of the possessions and like all of the all of the things that was lost in Japanese Canadian like mm-hmm. history like during the war like churches was a was a thing that was lost and I remember speaking to somebody in Seattle once who asked me about that and asked about like church and stuff like that and I was thinking about it and I was like I mean if people practice religion it's probably just on their own but I can't really think of any like Japanese Canadian type of church or church experience that really that I'm aware of that exists because those buildings were were lost and so like there 
Yeah, so it's really, and then, and like going to things that feel really community oriented where I feel like there's more presence of, you know, Japanese Americans like in pockets of Seattle or certain events. And like, you'll see that here at like festival or certain events, but I feel like it's just not as prominent. Yeah. I think going into the sort of conversations about community, I wanted to sort of ask, I mean, because I, I know I've talked about it with my friends, but how did you learn about this history and, and the history of what happened in in your respective countries and your families? Because I know for myself, I, ha- I happened to walk in to the living room one day and my parents were watching a movie called Come See the Paradise uh, that was set at Manzanar. And it was about a, a Caucasian man falling in love with a Japanese woman and, and having to make the choices when, when they were sent to camp. And of course, my parents afterwards telling me that it was a true story and that it happened to my great to my grandfather and his family. So, I'm curious how how you all came about this history and this story in these stories. So, learning about the Japanese Peruvian incarceration in America, my tia she would give us like books during Christmas, and they would be about like Crystal City or like something where she had an interview in. And like in one book, she had a little post-it on the little map of Crystal City. And it was a little post-it and it was like, oh, this is the barracks that our family was living in. But when I was little, like, I didn't really understand the gravity Mm -hmm. of what that meant or even what incarceration was. So only in the past couple of years have I been able to look back on this and read those books and look back on that family history and see how we're connected to, like, the bigger Peruvian Japanese, like, diaspora and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Um, But, like, with the just Japanese Peruvian culture... I guess that I just was super steeped in it since I was little. And like, Mm -hmm. even when I would go to Peru, there would be a lot of Japanese influence there. We would go to the Japanese cultural center or I went to the Japanese school there for a bit. There was a lot of Japanese culture that's still there. And although even, you know how the seasons are different, like, so they don't celebrate like the summer Matsuri, but they would still have like similar Obon celebration and Japanese schools that are still there. They have Japanese sports festivals against the other schools. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. yeah, so it's just like a very, very interesting mix of the cultures. So would they still do the festivals at the same time of year or would they flip them to match the season though? They didn't have like super big celebrations actually. It was more, you know, like how here it's very outwardly with the community. Mm-hmm. There it's more like, it's more in the household. Like for Obon, like oh, they would okay. do their like Osenko just like with their own family. Oh, that's so precious that like your family was able to preserve that, that culture and pass on that knowledge down to the next generation. Like, yeah, I, I really appreciate it. I, I'm super grateful now and I, I'm kind of a, like sad that I didn't realize it sooner. What do you think, Kayla? My experience was the opposite. <laughs> Yeah, my family didn't and still doesn't really talk about, uh, like, about this history. I think I learned about, like, kind of started to get exposure to it when I was, like, I think, like, 19 or 20, like, kind of in college years. And my sister, who's older than me, had started to take it upon herself to learn more about our family's story. And I think that's actually related to a course that she took at the University of Washington, Um, so yeah so I through that kind of I remember we had this conversation with our great aunt and uncle about their experience but then I don't think I really did much with that until I went to a conference for young Japanese Canadian people and I was in the same room with other 
like young Japanese Canadian people who were also fourth generation had like Japanese <laughs> last names and like middle names and stuff. And my mind was like, oh my god, like this is so weird. Like mm-hmm. <laughs> it was, it was, a, it was a weird experience for me. I was yeah. like, is this too much? Like, <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, because our previous exposure was just like my cousins, and like we never, we don't talk about. Or like we didn't talk about like being Japanese Canadian, and mm-hmm. we we celebrate like New Year's Day with my great aunt. But like I didn't even know that was a Japanese or Japanese Canadian tradition until like ta- meeting other like Nikkei kids over the last few years. Like I just thought that mm-hmm. she really liked New Year's, and that we uh-huh. would just <laughs> like for some reason have to visit her on that day. <laughs> yeah, so. I think, like, partly, though, it's hard because my dad, he's, like, the youngest of his siblings, and his parents died when he was 30. So mm-hmm. I don't know how much he actually learned about this from them, but he de- he definitely mm-hmm. didn't talk to us about it growing up. And even mm-hmm. now, we'll try and talk about things. And I think often with my work, especially, like, I <laughs> will often talk about, like, things like intergenerational trauma. And my dad will always be like, yeah. we don't, like, no, like, that doesn't exist. Like, no, what is that? Um, oh. Or or he'll just deny, yeah, it's really awkward. Or he'll just deny that we ever have asked or asked him about his family. Or he'll mm-hmm. defer me to, like, be like, oh, ask my cousin. And I'm like, well, I don't really know your cousin. I don't know if I want to just you know, cold, like reach out to them and be like, Hey, so I'm just wondering about like this reference thing about our family. So <laughs> I feel like yeah. my dad's really weird about it. Yeah. And even after like doing like the suitcase project and stuff like that, I find it really interesting because I think that my family, my, my immediate family, like we still struggle. We haven't really talked about these things. And mm-hmm. so like, even though my parents have seen me talk about intergenerational trauma, it's like, you know, at the end, it's like, okay, like, good job, pat on the back. Okay, like, awkward parting. Like, let's not talk about what actually just happened. <laughs> so, yeah, so that's my family's experience. It's good to hear that, like, you guys, even though it's often unspoken, it sounds like, you guys are still able to find that community or, like, find that space. But I'm glad that you guys are able to, like, at least approach that conversation and that you're able to like learn about that in that way. But yeah, yeah. I was wondering uh, to both of you, I guess, but for a wrapping up question, knowing like Canada's reputation, knowing that like, I believe it was Robin Williams who said Canada's like the, the sweet apartment above the meth lab that is America. Um, <laughs> knowing this reputation about Canada being like super nice and everything, what what is it like knowing uh, these details about it's not so nice past and what kind of what do you do about it like what issues does your community fight about? Yeah, I think it's really hard because the lens I think that seems to be on Canada is that Canadians are so nice and like well it's not America and like it's not as bad as what's happening um, across the border and and stuff like that mm-hmm. but like. There's still stuff, like, regardless of this history, there's still other historical things that have happened and things that are, like, continuing to happen in the Canadian landscape that are affecting Black, Indigenous, and people of colour. And 
I think it's really important that people understand and recognize that stuff is still happening, that Indigenous people right. still don't have access to clean water. Mm. Like, there's disproportionate numbers, right, of, like, Black and Indigenous people, like, being imprisoned, and, like, there's mm-hmm. still families here that are being separated and, like, detained. Oh, and, like, also, like, the oil pipeline um, on Wet'suwet'en territories just basically invading and polluting um, Indigenous land, just to, like, add on to it. Yeah, no, of course, yeah, let's just, you know, tack them all on. Like, there's there's so many things that I think that are happening, and in our landscape as well in, in Vancouver with low-income communities. And so I think it's really important that, you know, I think regardless of what your experience, what your family's experience is, you should be using whatever power and privilege you have to... I think speak up about these issues and like make change where you can in terms of like, is that a donation? Is that volunteering? Is that sharing information and resources? Mm-hmm. And so I think it's really great when I see people in my community, in like the Japanese Canadian community who are doing work outside of the Japanese Canadian community. And so it's funny timing that you actually asked this question because right now, uh, because of COVID, like everything is canceled. And so our annual Japanese Canadian Festival, Powell Street Festival, is going to be doing a telethon this year instead. And they're mm-hmm. raising money to do a community kitchen program in the downtown east side, which is uh, mm-hmm. like our low-income community. So I think it's really cool to see them raising money to support this program that they're, that they're putting together to feed people in that community uh, give people jobs and like you know uplift those those folks and I think that's super cool to see when like people in our community who especially have a lot of you know like again power and privilege and like influence to do these things like when they do that kind of stuff it's really great mm-hmm. oh yeah I think it's I think that's it's something I've seen at least in the Nike community all over the world is it's great seeing how we all come together to help others in in times of need and especially right now with COVID and everything. Similar question to Kayla's question. So like I was wondering like what kinds of issues do like Japanese Peruvians still face or like Japanese Peruvians that are now residing in America face and what kind of causes and issues do your communities fight for and are focusing their attentions on? So I think that the uh, like the Japanese Peruvian American community is pretty similar to like the like, overall Nikkei prospect of helping and uplifting other communities where we see where our support is helpful. And yeah. I think that similar to, I mean, a lot of other Japanese Americans, like Japanese Peruvians just want their stories to be told for their stories to be recognized. And I think that, yeah, like just mm-hmm. for the older generations, a lot of them, like a lot of Japanese Peruvians, a lot of them are not around anymore. Or, or they don't want to remember or revisit those memories or who actually remember. So a lot of the Japanese Peruvians, they, like the older generation, they want to share their stories and pass them on to the next ones so we can continue to tell these stories since they're not super well-known in the Nikkei community. Yeah, it's crucial. Uh, do you uh, have a family back in Peru still that you keep in contact with? I actually have like, yeah, a lot of family back in Peru. Uh, my grandparents still have their apartment there. They usually oh, go wow. back every year. And so whenever I go back, we always go to see a ton of family, um, like in the countryside or in the city. So it's all over the place. Oh, that's wonderful. 
Yeah. So that was a great conversation. Thank you guys both for coming on. I learned so much about Peruvian and Canadian experiences in the Japanese community. And I'm so glad that we had your stories told so that we can share them more within within the, the Nikkei community at large. Thank you guys so much for, for coming on. Thanks so much for having us. I'm so happy to have this conversation with you guys and learn so much about the Japanese Canadian community. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for having me as well. It was great to chat with all of you and learn a little bit more about the Japanese Peruvian and Japanese Peruvian American experience. And yeah, I'm I can't wait. I don't know about you, but I'm I'm like coming up to Vancouver when this is all over and I'm getting some chow mein sandwiches. <laughs> and I'm also going to get some ceviche and Japanese food. So just heads up. <laughs> Thank you again to our wonderful guests for this week. Be sure to join us for next week's episode on the end of War to Redress, where your Yonsei Roundtable will be hosted by Yoko and Michelle. To learn more about the history behind today's episode, be sure to visit jampilgrimages.com and click on the Nikkei Rising tab. The Yonsei Podcast is created by Hiro Edeza, Michelle Heckert, Yoko Federenko, Johnny Narita, and Matthew Weisbley, with theme music by Michelle Heckert. This has been the Yonsei Podcast, and it's been Yonsei. <laughs>